You're listening to episode three. Hello and welcome to What Leaders Know. It's the podcast for people on leadership journeys. I'm your host, Penny Beeston. I help people take their leadership to the next level. You can learn more at whatleadersknow.com. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Today's podcast will be of particular interest to listeners with an eye to leadership in the public sector and more specifically in local government. My guest today is Kelvin Spiller. Kelvin has had a career in the public and private sectors and has had nine CEO roles in local government, water and not-for-profit sectors. He has held more than 35 directorships on state and national government, business and community boards. Kelvin captured his leadership career insights in his book titled One Step Ahead, which launched recently. The book's invaluable for those on leadership journeys as Kelvin shares what aspiring leaders and CEOs need to know before, during and after their first 100 days. In today's podcast, Kelvin promises to share some great insights from his experiences of working for and with bad leaders, good leaders and great leaders. Welcome, Kelvin. Thanks very much, Penny, for the opportunity of speaking with you today. Kelvin, I begin each interview with this question, why does leadership matter? Given you are now living back in your hometown of Melbourne at a time when COVID has resurged in the community, could you answer the question, why does leadership matter in the context of COVID? Sure, Penny. Um, Look, regardless of the situation at any time, but particularly now with uh, COVID, leadership is under the microscope in terms of organisational leadership and a community crisis. So, you know, whilst stating this present reality of COVID-19 and that we're all trying to cope with, leadership gives you a sense of hope at an individual level and also hope for the community for the future. And uh, as a leader, uh, you really then are able to show people that there is a pathway forward and how to get there. And if you can communicate that message in a way that's easy to understand, then the majority of people will be more inclined to follow you. I really like that you talk about the importance of giving people a sense of hope at this time when you're in a leadership role. And I'm thinking also of the leaders who are coming into leadership roles in this very difficult time of COVID. Many new leaders are still in that doing phase. So they've been in management roles and they're, they're very much the doers. What guidance do you provide for them when they're moving into a strategic leadership role? Yes, Penny, it's a a question I come up against uh, quite often and uh, what people need to understand when they're going for a leadership position is that they're going to use different skills almost certainly to the skills that they use in their current managerial or operational role. They need to keep their focus on the future. Uh, they need to continually think about their personal vision and the uh, the vision for the organisation and the major changes that they might need to make to their own style and to the business or the organisation they work for. So, look, there's probably four key takeaways uh, that come to mind uh, for your listeners in relation to this question. One is that the doer has had to focus on the day-to-day problem solving, while the leader is usually more focused on the bigger picture and the future outcomes. 
The second one would be that the doer uh, is more inclined to focus on uh, controlling things like controlling the processes, whereas the leader has to focus their attention on motivating the people that they work with to be able to get the best out of them so that they can, well, be the best they can be. Uh, the third one would be where leaders create uh, vision and direction, whereas the people who have been managing the processes tend to be the ones that are working out the detailed goals and action plans to make sure that the business can achieve the vision. And the last one that comes to mind is that a strategic leader is usually a change agent, whereas a doer is usually more focused on just refining uh, the status quo, you know, looking at efficient efficiency and things like that. So they're pretty big takeaways. In terms of giving themselves permission to, to fail along that, that transition, how do you think they might seek support in that transition period? In terms of seeking support, they certainly need to do lots of reading. They need to do a great deal of preparation before they start their new role. And my suggestion to them would be that they engage a personal coach if they don't already have one. And if they're not in a position yet, where do you suggest they find or source a good mentor perhaps? Some of the places that have been helpful for me to refer people to as well are the Australian Institute of Management, the Australian Institute of Company Directors, or in fact any professional group that provides support to senior leaders. One group that I've been involved in for a number of years is the Executive Connection Group, and they have groups in all capital cities in Australia. So there's like there's lots of resources there which you can find pretty easily just by a quick Google. So just to give you an example, I'm aware just recently uh, of a CEO who's just lost their job, primarily because they didn't want to seek outside help. They they came from another area. They didn't have a a level of trust. Uh, They didn't really know how to go about that and they didn't want to ask anybody. And so what what a dreadful place to be. I think that's that fear of being judged to be less than able because you're seeking help and support. And as I was going through my leadership journey, I always had mentors, both formal and informal. Oh, most definitely. And look, uh, I think that's probably Leadership 101 is to be able to say when you don't know the answer to a question, but usually you'll know where to get the answer. You've been in CEO roles across NGOs, private and local government sectors. At one stage of your career, you pivoted from leading a very large local council in Victoria to take up the reins of Endeavour, one of Australia's largest for-purpose disability service providers. And that's, of course, where our careers intersected for a, a brief time. What insights can you share about the difference in leading across those diverse sectors? Sure. Look, this was um, a good learning experience for me as well, Penny. Um, And in fact, the Endeavour Foundation was a great experience for me because it was outside of what I'd previously known and experienced in local government and sort of being on a number of boards. But the the roles, in fact, are very similar. Um, But before I go into that, if I could just say the main difference in the role was probably the core business uh, or the day-to-day activities, whereas there are many similarities. Like, for instance, uh, strategic planning, uh, growth management of the organisation, 
uh, overseeing the goal setting and developing the detail of action plans and uh, also the governance functions such as you know risk management finances audit requirements legal and statutory requirements and just ensuring good processes for decision making all of those matters were identical another area that was identical was just leading large numbers of staff so in the case of endeavor i think there were about 1700 uh, full-time part-time and casual people employed and with the case for the city of greater geelong there was nearly 3000 staff so the learning for me was that in the first 100 days the the key principles of both CEO roles were really the same and I guess just a couple of quick takeaways. One is that in any CEO role you need to be clear on the parameters and the extent of authority of each role. Uh, the second one would be that you need to have an understanding of the technical aspects of the organisation and you need to do that quickly like the finances, the risks, the opportunities, the resources available, the legal requirements and you know, key strategies and policies and things. And lastly, the third one would be from a personal perspective, you need to take sufficient time to understand the environment that you're working in. Uh, you need to be able to make a positive first impression by being strategic, collaborative and display a positive attitude. Uh, you need to be able to gather your information in a structured manner rather than just ad hoc and sort of reaching out for 20 different things with no apparent plan. And you need to be able to understand the uh, leadership and team styles of the key members around you. And, and you also need to understand their areas for training and development. And lastly, uh, you need to be able to build rapport, create relationships with multiple people simultaneously. Once you um, have one CEO role and as you go into your second one, the, the pieces of, of what might seem to be a jigsaw puzzle just fit into place. Mm. Um, and, and you can see that all of those similarities that I said, uh, they are the same. And, and what I would say is probably 20% of those two different organisations were different and that might re that related, say, to the core business because the core business of the two organisations was, was vastly different. But 80% of the role uh, of CEO was, in fact, um, similar, if not identical. What is it about leading organisations that really attracts you? Because you seem to have been drawn to this level of role for a very long time and succeeded in all of the roles you've undertaken. So what is it that draws you to that? Look, the first thing, Penny, would be I need to be involved in making a difference. And when you're aware that a job is available, it doesn't take long to, once you do some research on it, to work out that there will be some changes that will be needed. So that would probably be the challenge that would you know, appeal to me. I'm, I'm not interested in just being an administrator. I want to be able to feel that I can make a difference and sort of leave a, leave a positive legacy. You're someone who comes in and you will drive the next stage of the organisation's growth. Yes, look, that's what's happened. In fact, I'm not sure that it was as well planned out as that, but uh, I've certainly been attracted to organisations that have been uh, complicated and look as though that they've got many challenges from the outside. 
And then when I um, go into an organisation, there's a process that I go through and that process helps me get information in a structured way really quickly. And then it's very easy to, easy then to determine what it is that needs to be done in you know any particular time period. Sometimes it's the first year, sometimes it's the second year, and then sometimes it's not quite as urgent, but it needs to be done during that period of um, employment. That says that leadership's complex and no matter what the context or sector, it's interesting and complicated. In your book, One Step Ahead, you identify these five pillars of leadership. How does this model inform our understanding of leadership as we take up those roles? Penny, look, it's probably helpful for me to just give you a couple of um, seconds of context in relation to these five pillars of leadership. A few years back, I was getting overwhelmed really with the volume of leadership available. My wife and myself was part of our business leadership team in Australia. We identified a, a number of pillars that were relevant to my CEO career and board career. Uh, we also developed the, then a framework and identified some tools that clearly represented, you know, some of the actions that I'd taken over the years. Can I say that these five pillars of lived them and have, have first-hand experience of them all? Pillar one is about obtaining qualifications, technical and managerial skills. Pillars two is about the need to keep learning and your level of personal development and self-awareness in all situations. Pillar three is about developing your emotional and social intelligence skills, uh, understand your own emotional triggers and the triggers of others around you. Pillar four requires you to acquire some other managerial skills and take certain actions to you know, be able to engage properly with individuals and teams. And pillar five requires you to proactively manage up, down and sideways. Now, particularly managing upwards uh, is something that's not often done with intent or if it is done, it's not done very well. You know, relationships must be managed and not left to chance and you can't just skid along on the seat of your pants in relation to a key relationship. So there's a lot of value in people exploring and going deeper into those five pillars and understanding what it is that each of those represent in terms of their development and their preparation and moving into leadership roles. You talked about the complexity or the, or the challenge of managing up and that people often do it but don't even realise that they're doing it and so they're not doing it that well. How do people manage up well? <laughs> Penny, I've developed seven takeaways and the seven things that you need to do with intention is you need to be able to, first of all, speak with the person that you're reporting to and to get them into a conversation so that you can both understand the perspectives on your different roles because you will have different challenges and different opportunities. The second one would be you need to be proactive in establishing some common ground with you, your communication skills. So like, for example, do you play golf? Do you have any common hobbies or interests? And by doing this, you'll start to create some rapport and intentionally putting the building blocks in place to create a working relationship. You also need to just share some information about yourself, your style, you know, your values, and also your, your personal and, and work goals. And once again, if you do this with the person that you re 
report to, it automatically invites them to respond and to share some of their thoughts on these matters. So, you know, it's a great way of getting them into a conversation about a, a range of matters. The fourth point um, that you need to do is to just recognise that there is a demarcation between the role of a CEO and, say, the role of a chair. And quite often, both of these positions can get themselves into a lot of uh, difficulty uh, when they go across that demarcation line. So you do need to understand the legislative requirements the different roles have, and as well as the local views and perceptions about the roles, because quite often uh, the perceptions that other people have of the responsibilities of, say, the chair and the responsibilities of the CEO will be way off the mark. You also identify your KPIs and the timelines uh, and when you'll seek feedback uh, from one another and, you know, how that process um, will be formally monitored. And you need to share and, you know, as I said earlier, the understand each other's challenges in the different roles. And lastly, you need to ensure that there's full and open disclosure on everything and work on the principle that th there will be no surprises for either of you. As I said, it applies to uh, the experiences that I've had and it means that when I now look at any leadership information, I'm able to put it into the part of my model that it applies to, whereas before it was like a jigsaw puzzle, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 100 pieces scattered everywhere, and now I've got them all in sort of a structured uh, format. And they make sense. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, I've been able to um, suggest uh, to clients that they, particularly going into new roles, that they use the model. And um, as we speak today, it's currently being used by uh, four CEOs in different organisations, so um, oh, and, and I've proved that it works myself in about seven or eight of the CEO roles that I've had. I always liken the journey to leadership. It's something of a marathon. It's not a sprint <laughs> and it, it's certainly not for the faint-hearted. So what are some of the insights you can share with our listeners for those times when they feel that their career has stalled? Perhaps they missed out on a role at the next level or they feel they're just not breaking through. What are some of the actions you would recommend when the leadership marathon feels overwhelming? Overwhelming, yes. Okay, well, look, um, in this situation, and look, I must say that I come across it on a, a regular basis, especially with, with new clients, and I'm sure you do too, uh, th there's probably uh, four or five areas that I recommend to them. The, f the first one is that I usually ask to have a look at their CV, and what I find is that it's often got far too many pages, too much detail. Um, the activities are focused on responsibilities rather than on, on achievements. It's difficult often to sort of see the highlights in the CV because it sort of all looks pretty much the same. Um, the achievements on the CV need to be focused. They need to be focused on strategy, leadership and operations. And quite often you'll see people's CV full of operational achievements but very little reference to strategy and leadership. Um, and so on average, I find that it will often take me three times uh, reviewing a CV with somebody just to get it right. But when they see the end result, they'll, they 
common response is I can't believe it's the same document <laughs> and it's it's really it's the same information just sort of reshuffled and um, you know condensed mm. but it's amazing particularly with so many senior executives both in and outside of the public uh, sector uh, they'll come to you with a CV that's seven pages long and I just say to them well look you know if you're the person at the other end that's got 50 of these to look at where's yours going to go it'll probably go down to the bottom of the heap because it looks to be the most complicated to read so mm. Uh, look, the, the second thing is that I use a psychometric behavioural model uh, and there's a number of, the, of them available. I, I tend to favour the MBTI one. It's been around for many years and um, also uh, – but it doesn't have to be that one. It can be, be others. But I help people identify key words that describe their leadership and team styles and um, then get them to, to provide a definition uh, of their leadership style in less than 30 words. And uh, that then uh, helps them considerably just to, you know, focus on their style because quite often people haven't thought too much about it until they're asked the question in the interview and, of course, then it's too late because you're fumbling around. And the third area that I look at is there's a whole lot of common interview questions Three key ones are why are you interested in the role, uh, what value can you bring to the role, in other words, you know, what are your strengths, and the third one is what would you do in your first three months if you were appointed to the role. Well, the answer to the first question, you know, why are you interested, uh, that needs to include reference to the challenges of the position and, you know, how you indicate, you know, how your values will align with the organisation's vision and corporate values. Um, the second question about what value could you bring to the role, well, that needs to focus on your key strategic uh, leadership and then operational strengths, uh, you know, with a maximum, maximum, probably two bullet points for each of those three categories. Quite often it's, I normally say to people, two bullet points for strategy, two bullet points for leadership and two bullet points for operation. And the, the third question uh, about what would you do in the first three months uh, well, you must refer to you undertaking your own research or, you know, on issues um, and you do this, you know, by having a range of meetings with many key stakeholders, including the person that you report to who will often be on the interview panel. And by doing your own research in the first month or so, that implies that you're going to have a collaborative approach. Um, and with this feedback, you'll be able to identify, you know, a pathway forward. Fourthly, uh, I talk to people about the importance of body language and being personable and likeable because if you don't meet these criteria, you won't get appointed. I mean, mm. so you can get all the other questions right, but if you're not likeable, well, then there's a pretty good chance you, you won't be successful. The last thing I do is then prepare them on how to close the interview um, in having a couple of strategically focused questions at the ready. Uh, as well as provide them with a, a closing statement uh, to leave the interview panel with in a, in a positive impression. So there's a number of things there that you can say to somebody who might think they know it all. If they're wondering why they can't get past the first post, um, quite often that first post is their CV. So for our listeners, you see that the preparation they put into the interview is the powerhouse. Be well prepared and go in with confidence. 
Yes, look, it's, it's not a matter of, once again, leaving this to luck, uh, Penny. You, you have to structure your mind and you have to structure the information and the documents that you're presenting. And and the other thing which I say to clients, in fact, I've said this to someone only a couple of days ago, uh, they weren't successful and they weren't all that hopeful because they, they believed that there was an internal position and they um, believed that it might be uh, – there might be a preferred um, – candidate anyway but I said look don't focus on what might happen with things that are outside your control all you need to do is focus on you and the things you can control and if you can put yourself in the best possible position then that's what you can do because probably 60% of any interview is outside your control the 40% that's within your control is you know what you can do with you to position yourself it's important to have your CV structured so that it can can have some impact if you don't have it constructed properly then there's a big chance you will never ever get to the second step because that is a huge gate isn't it absolutely and as i said what astounds me how many senior executives have very little idea in relation to their own cv you need to have somebody else to critique your cv particularly Mm -hmm. if you're if you're a senior leader, you need to have a historical document as a CV, you know, on your as a soft copy on your file at home. But you can't. That's not the CV that you will give to an interview panel. You, you need to give them the CV that actually highlights the key mm-hmm. things that they're looking for. So you help them to navigate the document so that they go from a positive to a wow. This person. Well, that's really that's good. right. And and look, initially when I say to somebody. Look, your seven pages, we need to make that three pages maximum. They say, well, I can't do that. And after three or four goes at it, uh, you'll be surprised at how it looks. And and it does normally take three or four goes to to get it right. Mm. You've had an extensive leadership experience in local government. What do you believe is the biggest challenge that local government councils face today in Australia? Wow, okay. Um, so look, there's a, there's a number of things that come directly to mind and perhaps if I could just give a little bit of context, um, there are many councils throughout Australia today that are in trouble uh, one way or another and um, I believe that this situation could be significantly reduced if people don't just try to run by the seat of their pants in relation to their leadership skills, but they really do focus on what are the skills they've got, what is the style they've got. And if you want to be able to influence people and take them with you and to you know vote at a table or get them to vote at a table to go with some program uh, that you think should be put in place, um, you need to be able to have proper influencing skills. And it's not good enough to say, oh, well, look, you know, I speak my mind and, you know, everybody knows exactly where I stand. Well, that's all good and well. But if you have to bring other people with you, that won't even get you to first base. So quite often people that are elected to local governments uh, are elected on a single issue. And that single issue, which they don't understand at the time, is often outside their control as an individual councillor. They'll need a team of people to agree with them to actually put uh, that particular issue, whatever it might be, in place. They also need to understand the responsibilities of a large, complex organisation. And in the case of 
most councils I have something like about 130 different services, uh, either focused on personal care, uh, recreation, waste management, infrastructure, town and future population planning, uh, community services, you know, roads, streets and bridges, etc. And um, mostly their knowledge of these services is very limited when they're elected. Um, because they will often stand for council, as I said, on a couple of issues or maybe even a single issue. So they have to pick up skills really, really quickly. Now, at a personal community leadership level, a councillor needs to develop high-level self-awareness skills, as I said before, of their leadership style, because if they don't, well, then they just won't get to first base. And and lastly, councillors need to understand that some relationships of some other elected members will just be too fractured. Um, they'll be too fractured because of either personality differences or factional or even political interests. And some ideologies and political theories or, or simply just, you know, personality differences are sometimes just too polarised for people to, to be able to come together. That's where you'd need to have very strong influencing skills or if you don't have them, you need to acquire them very quickly. So, um, yeah, they're just some of the things that, that I believe uh, you need to be aware of. But certainly the key point is you need to be open to learning and also uh, learning about your personal style and the impact that that personal style has on other people. Because if people, once again, don't uh, like you or don't respect you, well, then you can have the right ideas and uh, you won't get to first base because you won't get the support that you need. Local councils across Australia have a massive job keeping local communities and infrastructure running. It sounds like they might benefit from some good leadership coaching. Look, um, they probably do. It is interesting because some people will have the view that they don't need any coaching. And they've, uh, I mean, for instance, um, if you're a successful business person and say you've had 20 or 30 years of experience in business and you've done well, that's one thing. And you can, you can say that you are a leader in that area. But because you've led in that area, that doesn't mean to say that you will be a successful leader in taking other people forward. And look, we've seen that in so many of our leaders, uh, you know, in the community today. They can be successful in one area, but that doesn't mean to say that they're going to be successful in influencing people when you can't either push bully or coerce somebody into a certain situation. Would you say that when you're in local council, the stakeholder management is more complex than perhaps in an organisation? Yes, it is, because there are a number of key stakeholders that you can identify, but then there are a number of others that you don't even know are key stakeholders until they rise up against you. And if, for instance, you're a CEO in an organisation and you pay little attention to, say, a person who might be a key influencer and be the president of a um, ratepayers association, just for an example, mm. um, if they feel aggrieved about something that's been done or hasn't been done, then uh, quite often as a CEO, you'll find yourself in the firing line. So you need to understand who are the likely key stakeholders as well as who are you know, the formal key stakeholders in determining how successful you will be as you move forward in that role. 
Yes, there's some new insights for me. Kelvin, in your book, you expand in detail about the importance of those first days for a leader in a new role. Just before we draw to a close, what three takeaways would you leave with our listeners today that they can work on as they grow their own leadership careers? Okay, so there's a number of things that people need to think about and take action on, which will help them to be more successful in their um, in their position. Now, the first thing I would say is in on the first day, it's common for people to remember the very first time they met with you. So it's essential that you get off on the right foot with them and, you know, you demonstrate from the get-go that you'll be a positive role model and, you know, you're a leader that, you know, that they want to want to follow. So you need to be able to, you know, show people that you are in control of yourself, first of all, and that you're going to be able to create some powerful and, you know, positive first messages because otherwise people will remember that. And I'm sure you, you will have heard people say this to you over the years that they can remember when you started here the first day you did this or said that or said something different so the first time that people meet you on the first day um, that is a really important time so you need to be able to show that you have a plan you need to be able to have some thought through key messages in relation to how you'll go about your role and you need to immediately put in place some meetings with key stakeholders that we were referring to before. Quite often uh, in a new role, the CEO will take too much time to get around to doing the things that are the most important. And, um, you know, I've heard other people say that uh, the the new CEO started a week ago or three weeks ago and they've heard that they're okay, but they haven't actually met them yet. Now, they've missed a golden opportunity there uh, because in the absence of information, you know, there's an organisational grapevine. And if you want to turn that grapevine into something positive, if on the first day you've actually met with the chair and you've met with your key leadership team and perhaps even the wider leadership team, and within the first week you've got a plan in place that starts immediately to do some organisational wide meetings. And like this can be done easily. You just need to have the will to do it. And usually within the first, say, five or six days, if you've had a number of those key meetings uh, and then also organisational wide meetings, you'll have people then saying, oh, look, he's only been here four days and I'm out at the depot. He or she's already been out here and spoken to us. Look, the key messages that uh, they said, uh, you know, really resonated with me. Now, that's creating a positive first impression, but quite often it will take somebody far too long to do that. So you need to also straight away commit to an, an induction program. You need to you go on a very strong learning curve and you need to, within the first two or three days, start requesting documentation on the key strategies and the policies. Uh, so in a priority order. So if you do all that, uh, within the first week, it's really easy to demonstrate to people and give them some strong signals that, first of all, that you are strategic, that you're going to be thoughtful, uh, that you'll be collaborative, uh, that you're going to have a structured approach to gathering the information and making decisions, and that you're going to be working to a plan, a 100-day plan. So it's easy to do. You just actually have to do it. 
Stakeholder engagement can be quite daunting and your approach is very much about being proactive. What insights into successful stakeholder engagement can you share with our listeners today? Uh, There's a uh, book uh, that's been out for probably 15 years now called Walk the Walk by uh, Alan Deutschman. And it's a book that was a watershed moment for me. Once I read the book, it talks about the nine things that happen uh, when you walk the walk or walk the talk, as it's more commonly referred to. And I personally think that the greatest thing that you can do is to mix it with the people of the organisation who are on the front line uh, because you can't achieve great things without the help of um, a lot of people. And uh, this is unfortunately an area that is often left behind when a CEO looks at the 10 things they need to do. This will often be the 10th one, not, not number one. Well, it's interesting. One of my favourite leaders in Queensland is Katerina Carroll, who is currently, of course, the uh, Commissioner of Queensland Police Service. And up until six months ago, she was the Commissioner for the Queensland Fire and Emergency Services. And she was with QFES for five years, I think, before Mm -hmm. moving back to police. And in each case, when she took, took up the role of Commissioner, she was across this very big state of ours, meeting and learning from those frontline workers. I guess one of the people that made a huge impact on my leadership style was about 20 years ago, um, someone by the name of um, James Strong. He um, passed away about four years ago, um, a young man too at that stage, Mm. um, and now I'm older than him. Mm. (laughs) He was CEO of Qantas at the time, and when he passed away only four years ago, he was chairman of Qantas and chairman of Woolworths and on a number of other boards. But I remember uh, him being interviewed and people being interviewed that worked for him and the impact that he had by creating relationships with people in the field on the front line uh, was enormously uh, helpful for the organisation, the success of Qantas, the direction it was going in, and also for him personally. So, as I said, I was watching the TV news this particular night about 24 to 25 years ago now. Mm. Uh, that night has just stopped in my mind. And it's an easy thing to do. You just have to really understand that creating relationships and building rapport with people um, is probably the single greatest thing that you can do if you are involved in an organisation and you want it to be successful and you would and if you want to be successful yourself that's a great way to close out our interview Kelvin thank you for being generous in sharing your leadership insights and for the many in-depth and practical takeaways you left our listeners and can I say thanks Penny for the opportunity to talk to you again and share some of the experiences I guess and learnings that I've had over the years thank you again Kelvin If you want to check out Kelvin's website and purchase his book, One Step Ahead, you can head to his website, www.kelvinspiller.com.au. For show notes from this episode, head to my website, whatleadersknow.com. Thanks for tuning in to What Leaders Know, the podcast for people on leadership journeys. I look forward to catching up in the next episode where I interview another leader about their journey to leadership. Stay safe.